Hello, you're listening to New Testament Character Study number 20 on Lazarus. This is closely connected with the previous podcast on Mary and Martha. If you haven't listened to that yet, please do that first, because this lesson assumes the previous one. They're integrally related. Lazarus appears in the Gospel of John. He lives in Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, with his sisters, and apparently there's no one else there. Uh, No parents or children are mentioned as living in the home, but of course uh, we cannot prove that conjecture. His name, which is Greek, Lazarus, comes from the Hebrew Eliezer, which means God comforts. If you remember the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which most scholars consider to be a parable, we see the rich man in agony, and we see Lazarus comforted in the bosom of Abraham. We'll come back to that thought of being in the bosom of Abraham in a moment. This does make me wonder whether the parable was inspired by the story. As for Lazarus' character, we really know nothing at all. Nothing. Now, I think it's fair to guess that he was similar to his sisters, that there was a family resemblance. They were faithful, devoted, they were giving, they were real, So it isn't hard for me to imagine Lazarus was a genuine friend. He was a winsome individual. And as a fellow male, Jesus would have bonded with him. They they would be connected. We're going to first uh, read uh, the scriptures that all come from uh, John 11 and 12, or at least almost all of them. We'll talk about Lazarus' life, though there's no character development. That doesn't mean we don't know some things about him. And we're going to focus on five facts concerning him. Then we'll explore briefly a very intriguing possibility, which I think will be new to most of you listening to this. And then we'll end with uh, five or six points of application at the end. Okay, let's jump into the scriptures. And again, this is uh, uh, based on the previous lesson of Mary and Martha, so I'll be omitting quite a few. 11.1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This reminds us of John 9, the healing of the blind man. People are not thinking uh, clearly. They're not thinking correctly about him. And Jesus sets them straight. And he says that it's an opportunity for God to be glorified. And I think you'll probably notice a number of parallels between John 9 and John 11 um, as you study this later on. We continue. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now if ever there were a non sequitur in the Bible, here it is. He loves him so much that he lets him die. Of course, that makes no sense from a worldly perspective, but knowing the story, as readers of John's Gospel do, knowing the power of Jesus, as Christians do, we have um, insight into why he would do this. We go further. 11.11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Of course, the disciples misunderstand they don't understand. It's a metaphor. 
And Jesus says, let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And I hesitated to read that scripture, but uh, we had the uh, lesson before on Thomas. And, uh, you know, all these characters are interwoven throughout this narrative. So Jesus comes, finally. He found Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. We jump down to verse 33. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? So we see the emotion, the love. Please keep these thoughts in mind because we'll discuss them all in a moment. And then the reference back to the raising of the healing of the blind man. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Of course, Martha objects, doesn't she? Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus prays. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Here is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It anticipates Jesus' resurrection. They're prepared the same way. You'll see uh, numerous parallels. They're both in a tomb with a stone rolled up. They're bound not in a single piece of cloth, as in the dubious shroud of Turin, but they're two pieces, one for the body, one for the head. And Lazarus um, comes out, he needs help getting free of the grave clothes. And then 45 and 46, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And we'll just stop our reading right there. So the first fact is a dead man walks out of the tomb, absolutely stunning. Uh, We are given, in typical biblical fashion, we're given little insight into the thought world of Lazarus, into his emotions. But can you imagine uh, coming to and everything's dark. I mean, you have cloth even over your face. And he's walking. He's been commanded to walk. So I think of him as emerging somewhat stiff, uh, shuffling around when I was eight my mother dressed me up as a mummy, and I went around trick-or-treating, and the strips were, which eventually uh, unraveled as the evening went on, initially were very tight. Movement was restricted. And so he can't see at first. He's shuffling along. Uh, his friends uh, unwrap him. And you wonder, well, did he still smell the decay of death? 
Or was it just the smell of myrrh or the other things with which he would have been anointed? It's a fascinating thing to consider, but uh, again, the Bible doesn't have so much interest in psychology. It just wants to tell us fact and, and particularly the deeds of God so we can know God. We do see the result of his resurrection, that many come to faith. And yet, the impact of the miracle is mixed, as we'll read in chapter 12. Many come to faith. The notoriety of the miracle uh, accelerates the collision course on which Jesus is uh, quickly heading against the religious establishment. We wonder, why was Jesus so deeply moved? He weeps. He is deeply moved. We read several times. One emphasis in the Gospel of John is Jesus' humanity. It wasn't just a game. It wasn't some kind of divine charade. His emotions suggest his humanity. Though surely, I think it also tells us something about God. Some would say that Jesus was angry, and I give you a link if you want to uh, pursue that. And it's quite possible. He was very, Jesus was very agitated. So why did he wait those extra days? I've heard it said in sermons that the Jews believed the soul hovered around the body for three days after death. And once it was completely sure that there was no coming back from the dead, then the soul left. Is this what was going on? Well, if you look it up, and I'll give you some links if you if you pursue this, you'll, you'll find out um, that the uh, the tradition is actually quite late. It's in the Talmud. It's it's definitely recorded, but this is centuries after the time of Jesus. So perhaps they did think that in the first century. But we have to be careful. When we read something, even if it's just a generation or two after the New Testament, we have to be careful that we don't uh, retroject it uh, and, and read the New Testament in light of those later traditions of the Mishnah or the Talmud. This is a very common mistake made, I think particularly in the Messianic movement. Well, so this is the first fact. Lazarus is dead, but he comes out of the grave. How he felt, we don't know. But it truly is amazing. Let's continue reading in chapter 12. It says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Okay, well, this suggests that, that uh, you know, there's some gap, some interval between these two because the, the writers are reminding us of what happened. And Well, he comes to Bethany, the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. So this is the second time we meet Lazarus. He's reclining with Jesus. Why why is he reclining? Uh, Is he still recovering? Can he not sit up straight? Well, no. In ancient society... In the Roman Empire, among the Greeks, many of the Jews, that was the normal position when one ate dinner. He was on a a low couch, leaning on his left elbow, eating with his right hand, which meant that uh, if you were in this uh, kind of a banquet, your head would be 
uh, particularly if you were compressed together, it would be uh, almost right in the lap of the person to your left. And that gives us some insight into that phrase in Luke 16, where Lazarus, you know, the character of the parable, was comforted in the bosom of Abraham. I know you, you could say, I, I guess it's quite natural to think that he's being hugged by Abraham. He's sitting in Abraham's lap. That he's embracing him and comforting him. It's, it's comfort either way. I tend to think, though, that uh, understanding the, um, the cultural setting and even what archaeologists have found, that that's not the right way to look at it. In the bosom of Abraham might equally suggest that Lazarus is partaking in a great banquet and he's eating with Abraham. He's on Abraham's right side. This is a special dinner at any rate. And that's the second time we see Lazarus. Again, there's more that happens, uh, particularly in this case with his sister Mary, but that's in the last lesson. What's the third fact? You know, the dead man walks out of the tomb. Dinner, he reclines with Jesus. And third, after his resuscitation, Lazarus, like Jesus, his friend, becomes a target. 12.9 When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. Wow, man of interest, celebrity. Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the support of the Pharisees, easy eroding, the support of the establishment and the priesthood, it's all coming apart. They're not happy with that. No politician can be really content when his opponent is, is winning votes. And then verses 17 to 19, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So after his resuscitation, Lazarus becomes a target. The impact of the miracle is mixed. Some are moved to faith, Others are moved to resistance. And so it is with our lives. I think anyone who reads the New Testament sees that Jesus is controversial. Yes, he's wonderful. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's powerful. He's admirable in a thousand ways. But he divides the crowds. Some come to faith. Others come to oppose him even more. It's been my experience ever since I've come to faith. Some have been affected very positively. Others very negatively. Many people have come to faith. They've become Christians among my circle of, of friends and family and, and strangers and people I don't know. But others have resisted. They've hardened themselves and either actively opposed or in a, in a, a way that I think is sometimes even more painful decided simply to ignore me. I think that's what happens when we become Christians. We can't have it both ways. That is, we can't have that the whole world loves us. As Jesus will say in a few chapters, 15, 18, we shouldn't be surprised because the world will hate us if it hated him. 
It's a mixed reaction. So that's the third fact, that Lazarus, even though he's a celebrity now and, and has, uh, I mean, he's bearing powerful testimony of God's work, he's become a target. Fourth fact, then Lazarus disappears. Or does he? And we'll pursue that in the next section. And the fifth fact is that he's deeply loved by Jesus. This comes out in the account multiple times. In John 11, 3, 5, 11, 36. Now, you'd say, well, why does it say that Jesus loved him? I mean, I thought Jesus loved everybody. Well, while the Lord loves everyone, not all relationships are the same. This is not a general love, but a very specific one. It's a love of Christ for a person who is a genuine friend. In the same way, while we may be called to love our fellow man, in no way does that mean my relationship with the fellow across the street is the same as my relationship with my son or with a brother in the church. Jesus is deeply moved by the situation. Lazarus is deeply loved by Jesus. I think that must be very important because it's emphasized so many times. Well, those are the five facts. The dead man walks out of the tomb at dinner. He's eating with Jesus. He becomes, after his resuscitation, a target. Then he disappears. And yet, what's emphasized the most is the Lord's love for him. Now to the intriguing possibility, and then we'll, do some, we'll get into some application. Just when Lazarus disappears, he's no longer on the screen, the radar screen, Apparently, a new disciple appears. And that's in the very next chapter. Now, let me read uh, John 13, 23, and see if you can figure out where I'm going. One of his disciples, and this is at the Last Supper, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table close to Jesus. I'll leave it to you to do further study. We read about this disciple Jesus loved, not only here, but in chapter 19 and 20 and 21. So Lazarus disappears, the disciple Jesus loved appears. But I thought Lazarus was the disciple Jesus loved. Well, that's the possibility. Probably the New Testament scholar um, the most prominent New Testament scholar who promotes this view that Lazarus is the author of the fourth gospel is Ben Witherington. And I've talked to Ben several times about this, and more and more scholars are coming over to that view. I'm not sure you can prove it one way or the other. You see, the four gospels are anonymous. The traditional names of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come from the second century, not the first century. Does that mean Matthew didn't write Matthew? Well, because the Bible doesn't say, you can only make an argument on plausibility. Did Luke write Luke? Well, there are a lot of signs that he is the author of this two-volume work, Luke-Acts. But because it's anonymous, that possibility has to remain open that, that it's someone else who wrote it. And so it is with John's Gospel. Now, I think the case that that the traditional Apostle John uh, wrote the Gospel is a good case. And you can read about that in any standard New Testament introduction. 
But this possibility is that Lazarus wrote it. And you'd say, but doesn't John's Gospel say that John is the is the disciple Jesus loved? Well, actually, no. It doesn't. And in, in fact, in one of those verses, well, I'll, I'll just allude to it. I think you, you're familiar with chapter 21. Remember when Peter is kind of distracted? He's reinstated by Jesus. And uh, Peter says, well, what about that guy? And we think that he's pointing to John. Maybe he was. But it doesn't say it was John. And Jesus says something quite um, perplexing. If I want him to remain alive until I come, you know, that's my business. You need to follow me. Well, John may have been the youngest of the disciples, at least by tradition. But isn't there a more logical choice as far as someone who has already died and might be remaining alive and got the second chance, and that would be Lazarus. They want him to remain alive until I come. Of course, we believe that Lazarus eventually died. There's no record, but we believe he died again. So there are actually a lot of things that come together, and, and I think make sense with this view. And one of those has to do with the persecution. Lazarus is mentioned by name up to chapter 12. And then, after that, he's not mentioned by name, rather the more vague the disciple Jesus loved, which might reflect uh, a couple of things. One, that Lazarus was in danger, which we know he was. And two, it allows us to generalize the relationship with Lazarus to all of us. You know, because ideally we will be the disciple Jesus loved. We want that fellowship. We want that intimacy and that closeness. And what do you think about that? Something to consider. Not a matter of salvation, but it is a possibility that's being discussed in the New Testament world. Now, we close with application. The point is not just to have a podcast where we speculate about who the author is or, or what the background of one verse or another is. These things are interesting. But the Word of God is given to us for our transformation, not just our information, though they are connected. Well, first... God loves us, yet he still allows tough things to happen to us. In 11.6, we saw that Jesus knows Lazarus is mortally ill, and yet he deliberately delays. In fact, it seems that he delays because he loves him. It's not just, well, these hard things happen, but God loves us. It reads rougher, much more rough it's because he loves us that he lets these hard things happen. Though, of course, there was a purpose, too, that, that God would be glorified. I think this tells me that when I'm in pain, physical pain, which I, I often am, emotional pain, it's amazing how God gives those close to us the ability to hurt us, uh, disillusionment. When I'm in a difficult place or things are not going well, financially, or whatever the situation is, I shouldn't doubt God's love, nor should I doubt the relief that will eventually come. So that's something to think about. Uh, 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 all the more because Jesus was close to Lazarus. He lets him die. Jesus loved Mary and Martha. I mean, who was hurt the most? Actually, it wasn't Lazarus because, I mean, presumably in the sickness, there was some discomfort. But then he dies and he comes out and everything's fine. 
Mary and Martha are the ones who are hurting the most in this account. And yet Jesus lets them go through that pain. Second application. When God does great things among us, there will be some who are acutely uncomfortable. Maybe those are they among whom the Lord is not doing great things. Or they're people who feel their power base, their influence is being compromised. Maybe people who simply want to live for sin. But just because God's doing great things doesn't mean everyone will applaud. Nor does it mean that all who applaud are inwardly happy about it. As in the case of Lazarus and Jesus, as in the case of all disciples, John 15, the second half, if we obey him, there will be opposition. Third, we were dead in our sins before we knew Christ. Now, I'm spiritualizing the passage, and yet I think there's evidence in John's gospel that we're intended to spiritualize this gospel in many ways. A fundamental thread running throughout John is the material world and the spiritual reality behind it. The earthly level and the heavenly level. Lazarus is physically dead. He comes to life. The blind man was literally lying, uh, blind, but he gains his sight. But you look at the end of John 9. Look at the twist. Look at the interpretation of that account. In Ephesians 2, we were dead in our sins. Such a powerful passage. No wonder it's become such a beloved passage uh, in the in the world of uh, Bible believers. Let me read some of that. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the world, a uh, power of the air, the spirit that's not working, the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So you see, this applies. It applies quite directly to us. And we could no more have raised ourselves up then Lazarus could have brought himself back to life. We were and we are wholly dependent on Christ. Next, God's love for us isn't just platonic or abstract. The Bible gives every appearance that God feels, that he cares. Jesus weeps. God is moved. I don't know exactly how his emotions are different from ours. Of course, ours are fickle and often rooted in selfishness. And we're, we're ignorant. We, we don't see the big picture the way the Lord does. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't truly care. So let's not distance ourselves from the Lord by, in a way, imagining Him to be distant from us. God's love for us isn't just platonic. Well, this means we should pay attention even to the minor characters in the Bible, like Lazarus. 
Because although there may be no character development, still there may be a number of things that we can learn about God. And that's what theology is.